You're listening to The Itch, a podcast exploring all things allergy, asthma, and immunology. I'm your co-host, Courtney, a real-life allergy, asthma, and eczema girl. And I'm your second host, Dr. Payal Gupta, a board-certified allergy, asthma, and immunology doctor. Courtney and I hope to balance each other out so that we get you all the information that you want and need about allergies, asthma, and immunology. Hi, everyone. This episode is the second part of answering questions on what new allergy sufferers should know. In this part, we tackle the lifestyle side of food allergy diagnosis. So we asked Stephanie Lowe to join us as we talk about things like grocery shopping, navigating labels, how to approach friends and family about your needs, how to find your comfort level, and introducing new foods to your child. A little bit about Stephanie. She's a food allergy advocate and community thought leader. She is a mom of three, the eldest of which has multiple food allergies, FPIs, asthma, celiac disease, and all three manage environmental allergies. If you've ever seen a building light up teal for food allergy awareness, this is because of Stephanie. She is the founder of Turn It Teal, which is a global project committed to raising food allergy awareness by lighting buildings and monuments and bridges teal. And this happens predominantly during Food Allergy Awareness Week in May. Next time you see a teal building, you'll know a little bit more about the person behind it. So without further ado, let's jump in. Stephanie, can you tell us a little bit about your allergy journey? Sure. So my oldest was born almost 13 years ago. And when he approached his first birthday, we went to try and introduce dairy. And he had what we now know is an anaphylactic reaction. And then a few days later, we tried to introduce egg. And again, the same thing happened. At that point, I was like, this is not normal. This should not be happening. And we called our pediatrician. And that's when we started down our road to getting a diagnosis with food allergies. So he was about one when he was officially diagnosed, but I kind of had a feeling that things were not the way they should have been from pretty early on. In the process, we were diagnosed originally with the top eight, except for wheat and also citrus and corn at that time. Through the process of elimination, we've been able to add a lot of those back. We didn't know a lot about testing at the time and, and what we should be looking for and whatnot. So So we kind of went down quite a few rabbit holes. Then when he was about three or four, we found out he also has celiac disease. So we added that, which I always kind of chuckle about because he was originally said, oh, wheat wheat was the only top eight he could have. And then we find out he had celiac after that. So um, that was how we were introduced into the world of allergies. Do your other kids have allergies or is it just your eldest son? They do not. They did as babies. Everybody was dairy free. And then while I was nursing and then they were okay to reintroduce. But again, that was kind of a hard step for me because we don't keep liquid dairy in our house. So introducing those things, which I know is the way to go. That's what every what the suggestions all are from the doctors now. Kind of a difficult step for us with how to manage that because of his allergies and being as severe as they were. You know, how do we introduce? that to the younger kids with keeping him safe at the same time so that's really interesting because I feel like that might even be a really nice way to lead into the first question we'll start with the big one what do we do now like I said that's like the big question and then it 
goes more into what do you do at home? What do you do with friends, family, daycare? Stephanie, what would your advice be? Or what should the first thing a new food allergy parent prioritize? I think every family responds really differently to becoming diagnosed. And I think the most important thing to do is remember that the child that you have is the same child you had before. And you just need to learn how to do things differently. It's very difficult to transition because you are usually thrown a lot of information without a lot of guidance. Obviously, my first biggest thing is obviously always have epinephrine auto injectors and always have an action plan for your child so that you can share that with your families and schools and everything else because that's the most important thing is knowing how to respond in an emergency. Aside from that, trying to figure out obviously day-to-day management of food is really key. Whether or not you try to have a mixed household, we call it, uh, either a mixed household where you do still have allergens in your home or not is a very personal decision. And it really depends on the family and finances are a big thing that go into those decisions and things like that and how safe and how comfortable you feel with managing those allergies on a day-to-day basis. In the beginning, we chose to remove everything from our house that was allergenic because at that point in time, that's where I needed to be. That's where I needed to start because once I could get to the point where I was comfortable, then we could start seeing, okay, is this working for us as a family? Is it not? Do we need to change things? So knowing where you are coming into it, because I think a lot of a lot of what's lost is that when you do get this diagnosis, it isn't just a diagnosis. You're getting diagnosed, but you have all of your own baggage that you're kind of bringing into it and your thoughts and your ideas and your anxiety levels all play into that as a parent and impact how you're going to manage this. So it's really important to understand where you're at and what you need to help keep your child safe. And that's going to look different for every family. How do you think parents can figure out what their comfort level is? Or is it just a day by day process where once you're diagnosed, you just go home and sit with it for a little while and then eventually slowly figure out exactly the right way to go? Well, I think it's really important to try and get as much information from your doctor as possible because some doctors have different schools of thought on how to manage things. So really getting their input and finding out what their suggestions would be. A lot of times from what I've seen and heard in the community, there isn't a lot of guidance as far as the day-to-day management. You're given, you you may be given your, your prescriptions and you're given your action plan But beyond that, it is pretty much up to you to figure out how to maneuver things. I am all about gaining knowledge through research, but it can definitely be a big rabbit hole that you can end up getting sucked into. And it's again, that's why looking back at your own anxiety and how you manage things, it can really spin your your head into a really bad place. And I remember when we started leaving the house it just seemed like a monumental task. So I think what you were saying is learning day by day how to progress through the disease and the knowledge that you're gaining as you're first diagnosed. So, you know, leaving the house became, okay, now we can leave the house, but we're only going to go to certain places. And then, okay, we can go to certain places, but we can't be gone too long. Or, okay, now we can go out for the day and make sure we have all the snacks and all the the lunches packed. And so I do think it's about building 
building blocks for, for us personally. It was definitely about building blocks of, okay, we're comfortable in this situation. So how can we kind of push that? Now we're comfortable in this situation. So how can we push it a little further? My goal was always to lead the most normal life that we could. And doing that takes time and it takes knowledge and it takes preparation and to expect your life to go completely to the way it was the day before the diagnosis, I think is it would be nice, but there's there's just so much that you need to learn when you are initially diagnosed with, with a food allergy. Did you ever seek emotional support or would you recommend seeking emotional support or some other type of support for parents when they do get this diagnosis? Because I know that a lot of people are talking about quality of life for food allergy parents. And I was just wondering what your thoughts are on that when it comes to having such a drastic lifestyle change. I'm so happy to see all this quality of life data coming out now. And I am so happy to see that a more holistic approach is coming as far as managing the psychosocial and psychological issues that come along with food allergies. One of the ways we celebrate in most cultures is by eating together and celebrating together. And that usually involves food. So the impact of food allergies is so broad on your day-to-day life that it is something that you really need to have a good handle on because it does impact every aspect of your life. So I am absolutely a huge supporter of, you know, the, the research coming out and doing anything that you can to improve your quality of life for you as a parent and for your child. Because what I have seen is a lot of times in highly anxious parents, end up passing that down in a way to their children. If, if, if my kids see me hyper excited about every little thing, then they they pick up on that. They're smart. They pick up on that. And then that becomes part of their lives. And I think that is definitely a disservice. With allergies, you have to walk that fine line of that ready state. You know, you, you do have to be aware. You have to be hyper vigilant. You have to do all that. But you can't let it become the only thing that you're worried about. Once you see that creeping in where you're you're not doing things that you want to, where you're staying home from events that you'd really like to be at. Once you see that happening, I think it's really important for either a parent, if you're, if you're being prevented from doing those things, or if you see your child doing that, getting them any type of emotional support help that they need. I've seen cases where it's really become quite a struggle day to day for families, and it makes me really sad. And I really hope that more families see that there are people that are trained to help specifically with food allergies because it is a different kind of subset of of help that this type of patient needs. You know, you have this emotional support that you need, but not everyone can seek outside help. And a lot of the times we rely on our family and friends. And how do you introduce that into your family and friends when you might need support from them, but they also have to understand what you're going through. And I feel like there's so much barrier between someone with food allergies and having their family understand that. So who you normally rely on for emotional support if you can't seek additional support because not everyone has that ability and those resources. And you go to your family, but what if your family doesn't understand it? And I think that's kind of an interesting dynamic. I think those things are really important to remember. And I think that some of the questions that we got like how do I find a community and what resources are available? Remembering that, like you said, you did have support before the diagnosis and you still do have that support. And so from what I'm hearing, and I'd like to find out what Stephanie and Courtney, what you think, one of the things that I'm telling a lot of my patients is that it is important to tell your friends and family and depends on everybody's way of communicating with their friends and family. But 
but to do that in a way that feels right for you, but to let everybody know what's going on and how it's making you feel and what you would like from the people around you in order to feel like you're being supported. I think those conversations, the earlier they happen, the better it is for families. But, you know, I want I want to know what you guys think and if you've had any experience with the forums that you're on to see if that works or if it doesn't work. I'll let Stephanie tackle this one first, because I think my perspective is different as a person with food allergies. I mean, the more I learn about my mom's and my dad's journey about what they had, they didn't have much support because I wasn't really one of the only kids at that time. So their emotional support was really each other, I think. But now there's so much more available. So I'd love to hear what Stephanie has to say on that. So are you speaking like of online support? Or are you speaking on family support or, or a mix of that? I'd say both because there are so many different ways that a family can approach your allergies. So what would you kind of say to a new food allergy parent on how to approach their family, like what Pyle said, they were there emotionally for you before the diagnosis. So how do you have them understand the diagnosis and also the journey you're going through? And then if that's not working out for you, if your family doesn't understand it right away, when you do seek support online, for instance, how is your experience with that? So when you're approaching family, obviously they they should be the most supportive. And I, again, have seen it go both ways where families are go above and beyond in trying to understand the diagnosis and trying to learn all that they can about food allergies. I see a lot of disconnect, though, because I'm sure you guys have all heard where families are saying, well, we didn't have this back in when we were kids. You know, we didn't see all these allergies. I don't understand why. And that's kind of one of those things where that's like a conversation blocker almost. And it's hard to get past that because as a parent, I think we already feel, I say this all the time, we we didn't do anything to cause this. You know, we don't know. We're still looking. We're, we're still learning what has caused this. As much as I say that, though, I think every parent has that little bit of guilt in them. So I think if families say, well, we didn't have this, a lot of times you're already coming at it from a defensive angle almost because you do feel some of that guilt already. And it really, again, can start spinning you into a really bad headspace. So if you see when you're having these conversations that there just seems to be a disconnect, I think having really good resources from vetted sources, the orgs that are out there that that do all the research and all the all the work on it, you know, talking with your doctors. I know family, some families have had grandma or grandpa come with them to appointments if that's at all possible so that they try and get a better understanding that no, this this is a real thing. We don't know why it's happening, but it is. And we do need that support. Sometimes that can be helpful. It really depends on the family structure. If you find yourself in a situation where you don't feel like you have that community, I do see people reaching out online and that can be a blessing and a curse. Again, you can get in some groups where they have phenomenal information. They have moderators that really know what they're talking about and they will shut down conversations that go off on a tangent that is really going to put people in a bad headspace. And there are others that feed into the fear and feed into the self doubt and the, the dark side of things. And there is, there is a dark side of things and, and it is, 
easy to get kind of sucked into that sometimes. Again, online communities can definitely be very helpful. So it's really important to know yourself. And I, I always recommend at the beginning to try and stay away from pretty much unmoderated groups online because there can be a lot of misinformation out there. And when you're starting out on this journey, that's the last thing you need. If you are going to reach out to an online community, I really recommend making sure that it's backed up by by people who have some idea of what's going on and the science behind it. As always with our podcast, we're going to have resources that we trust. And there's definitely some blogs and uh, online communities that I think we've vetted more than others. And so we'll definitely share those. And that's all really good advice. So I think what I'm hearing is starting with your family, seeing how that goes, giving them as much information as possible. And I actually really love the idea of family coming in to your next appointment so that the doctor can answer any questions that they might have. I think that's a really good idea. And I think it kind of makes it more real for family members. And then secondly, finding communities online that are trustworthy so that you don't get sucked into those rabbit holes and those scary statements that kind of make you even more scared. One of the other questions we had was first things to do at home. And so I think the first things to do at home are also different for everybody, right? Like you said, you needed to take out all the foods in the beginning and then kind of reintroduce them slowly as you got used to kind of your groove. I know when we talked to, I think it was Meg, she had said that she had put allergenic foods on a totally different area of her kitchen so that she and everybody else knows that this stuff is not available to whichever child is allergic. And I think labeling is what I'm hearing. People in the food allergy community really use a lot of labeling and I think that's great. And Meg also said it depends on the child, right? Because she knew that her one child would be responsible enough to eat his brother's allergens. So it really also depends on the family dynamic. If you know that your one kid's going to be like crazy messy and have allergens all over the place, maybe that's not the best idea to have the food allergen in the house with that child. But if your kid is more or less responsible or a messy child might not be responsible, but it depends really on the child. (laughs) That's a great point. And then you had said, Courtney, that your house was totally not allergen free. So you guys had all your allergens at home and that I liked what you had said before when we were talking before that episode. Can you talk about that again? Oh, yeah. So I grew up in a household where we had all my allergens. And I think that it's a a good thing to have all the allergens in the house in one respect, because I grew up knowing how to manage a space with everything that I'm allergic to. So when I got to university and I had the roommate who ate the poppy seed bagels and didn't wipe the counter and left her peanut butter knife in the sink, I knew how to deal with that and not completely freak out. But again, that's also because I have a family that's very responsible, who was able to manage all of the allergens when I was a kid. My father also has food allergies and we don't have the same food allergies. So we're managing a lot of different allergies in my household. So it depends on the family. But for us, it, it made sense to be able to have things for him to eat and things for me to eat. And there are a few things that we just didn't eat at all. Like beef was never in the house or potatoes were never in the house. And I think that's just because we tried to cook for everyone's allergens and those things you can easily keep out. But we had soy in the house. We had peanuts in the house. We had almonds in the house. And my mom and sister would eat their peanut butter sandwiches and we would just hang out in a different room and they would clean up 
it's it's a family dynamic thing. You have to kind of figure it out. And for me personally, as a teenager, I also was okay with everyone having allergens in the house at that point because I didn't want anyone to miss out on eating something. As you get older, you have different levels of responsibility. So as a kid, we just knew not to touch things. You know, it's you just have your rules in place and that's how it goes. But I don't know what it would be like with another family or how hectic your household is and whether people are in and out, in and out, in and out. And if that makes sense, then it makes sense. But if it really is practically not good, then don't do it. Well, I think you were speaking about the finances too, you know, talking about being able to afford a therapy or not. And I think that's the other thing that people don't understand is I think if they are managing one allergen, depending on what it is, it may be easier or more difficult to keep out of the house. But also from a financial standpoint, the longer the list goes, I'm sure, as you know, Courtney, and you're you're saying your family house you grew up in is the more allergens that you have to keep out of the house or find replacements for it, you know, you don't need to find a replacement for peanut. You know, if you don't have peanuts in your house, you don't have peanuts in your house. Cooking without dairy is more difficult. So you may need to have a dairy replacement, which dairy replacements are going to be more expensive. So if you're feeding a family of four or five and cooking allergy free for or friendly for all of them, that is going to be more costly than if you did keep some of the allergens in the house and and do two separate meals. I know I, for my own sanity, choose to cook for our family all the same. We, you know, we, we don't have the allergens in our daily meals just because for me, it's easy. You know, that it's not about finances. It's not about, you know, keeping safe or not safe. It's for my own sanity. You know, I want to be able to not have to be in the kitchen. I'm I'm already in there a ton. I don't want to be in there more cooking two separate meals, one with dairy, one without. So for us, I choose, we do have allergens in our house. We are like, Meg, we have a, a cabinet where the contraband, as I call it, lives. And my son knows that he doesn't, I don't even think he knows what's in that cabinet because he knows it's not not going to be anything for him. The finances, again, come into play when you're cooking for your family, you know, and so, you know, definitely having a mixed household with allergens and non-allergens just makes financial sense for a lot of families. So it's 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 completely possible, like you said, to do that. And I think that's great that it, it did give you a look at how to manage when you went away to university. You were prepared for those. And I think that's a great point that it is something that prepares you for living day in and day out with your allergies. And I think it's nice to hear you say that. And so a family doesn't have to feel guilty for having allergens in the house because I do think sometimes you might feel guilty for having them in the house and you don't want the child your child to necessarily feel like they're missing out if there's something that they're not allowed to have. But at the same time, I think as a now food allergy adult, the same time, it makes you realize that I'm never going to have it. It's going to be around. I'm never going to be able to eat it anyways. So that's just my reality. And then you can move forward with it. And I think that does also give you a more positive outlook on living with allergies instead of just dwelling in the fact that that's never allowed and that that makes you feel like it's a foreign thing that's kind of shiny. So talking about food, can we jump into labeling? How do you figure out what you can eat? And how do you figure out what packaging means? And how do you know what to totally avoid? And what does may contain statements? What do those mean? And how do I navigate them? It's a lot of questions. But just in general, when you get into the supermarket after a food allergy diagnosis, what does that process look like? Again, I would start with finding out from your doctor. Some doctors say strictly stay away from may contain or made in a facility, made it processed on the same equipment. But labeling laws are very confusing. They are 
not necessarily helpful at times, but it's getting better. They are way better than they used to be. There are certain companies that just go above and beyond when it comes to labeling. And there are certain companies that have a not good reputation within the community because of their labeling. And the only way you figure out a lot of information is by calling. Again, depending on your allergens, depending on your doctor's advice, you may feel that you want to call for products. The first shopping trip after diagnosis, you need to go by yourself or with your partner, significant other, grandma, somebody, because I I think that's the biggest chance for you to have a breakdown because you're going to be standing in the store and just going, what? can I do? So it's very intimidating. It's very overwhelming. And again, depending on what allergies you've been diagnosed with and are figuring out, you really, it can, again, it can really mess with your brain. In the beginning, I always say stick with Whole Foods, the food group, not the store necessarily. You know, stick with your fruits, your veggies, your proteins, things like that, and then grow from there. I always say that nutrition is important. And in the beginning, you just have to make sure the kid's fed. You have to make sure that They've got a full belly and they're happy. And then as you grow, as you learn the script, when you call companies, if that's what you choose to do, you can start adding more and more things in. So I felt for us, the easiest thing to do was package products. We just did away with for a while until I got my groove, until I felt my legs underneath me. And then I could start adding things. Obviously for recipes that I think the internet is just amazing for, I would say even since we started our journey almost 13 years ago, the availability of recipes that do fit our subset of of allergens, because finding a blogger that has the exact same allergens as you is pretty difficult. But I know that there are databases with recipes where you can tick, I'm allergic to this, 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 and this, and it'll bring up recipes, you know, things like that. As you progress, definitely can start adding things. When it comes to the, the manufacturing, though, and the processing, may contain means different things for different companies Uh, made in a facility. A facility might have some things in place that you wouldn't even dream of. I have had the opportunity to listen in on food manufacturers, programs and things like that and talk about what they do for food safety. And these companies really are trying. And it's one of those things where they don't know what they don't know. They're looking at things from a microbiologic perspective. They're looking at how do we prevent E. coli or, or those things from getting into our supply. And now they are coming around to say, okay, we also need to keep allergens out of our facilities or how are we going to manage? Do we have a football field size manufacturing plant and stuff with wheat is made at one end and wheat free is at the other end where there's sheeting and positive airflow, things that you wouldn't even think of that are being thought of by these manufacturers that really are trying to improve their process in order to keep us safe as well. The advice of like the first grocery shop, having someone there to be a shoulder to cry on if need be is really good because I know even as like a 30 year old who's lived with allergies their whole life, sometimes I'm standing in the grocery store and I'm just about to have a nervous breakdown. It generally happens when like one of my favorite products changes or something. I'm like, are you kidding? I'm going to have to call them or something. And so I think that that kind of comes with the territory. But to have someone just hold your hand in that respect is really nice to hear. And maybe it is the other person you're managing the allergies with. Yeah. So I think that this is something new for me as a physician that 
food allergy sufferers call the companies. And that to me sounds so daunting and that I can't believe that parents do that. And I'm wondering now with the internet, with all these resources we have, are there websites that do that for you? Are are there people that are blogging that have gone through and called and figured this out? Because it just seems like very redundant to me to have millions of parents calling these companies, checking in and seeing what's new, what's changed, all that kind of stuff. So uh, is there a resource that people are using now? So there are. And this is kind of one of those topics that can go sideways for people. There are lists and there are people that love lists and there are those people that hate lists because as Courtney was just saying, you go to your store and your favorite product has changed. So if I get a list at school, schools a lot of times will go off of a list that we have a, a safe, quote unquote safe list. And this parent doesn't understand that when you say brand ABC, it means brand ABC that fits on the list. Well, brand X was on sale. So I brought I brought in brand X potato chips. Well, we don't know what sort of disclaimer or what may be in this product, but they're potato chips. Well, what could they do potato chips? Things can go go awry in in the allergy world with potato chips. While many people like lists, I personally in in our home, a list for us is always a jumping off place. I always feel that you need to be responsible and do your own research because what the person that made the list is comfortable with may not be your comfort level in your home. It is daunting. It is time consuming. It is tiring. And there comes a point where I feel you make less and less phone calls as time progresses. But I still call on new products. I still have a protocol in our house when I introduce a new product, which some people would probably think I'm crazy. I will. I, it always has to be first thing in the morning and it has to be on a weekend where I know I'm going to have my kid in my sight so that I can see and I'll do it on a Saturday and a Sunday or if we're on break, because if he's going to have a reaction, I want him to be at home when that happens. I don't want to send him off to school. Some people may think that's absolutely crazy, but it's what works for us and it's what I'm comfortable with. And he knows the program now. He knows that that's how it rolls. I also think he understands that trying a new product away from home is probably not a good idea. I hope that that's at least instilled in him so that, you know, he'll check in with me before he would try something new. I hope that if nothing else, that it's introduced him to that idea that I don't want to try something new when I'm off on a trip. Again, is it excessive? It may be in some people's homes. It may not work for some people. For us in our house and the phone calls and our process when we try something new, that does work for us now. So, and he's getting older now where he has a lot more input. You know, we've been trying to kind of change over the guard lately and definitely putting more of the responsibility on him. So now when he wants to try something, I have made him start doing more of the research and looking into it and looking up manufacturers, calling perhaps if he needs more information. So I wanted to make him as comfortable as possible with having those conversations. And I feel the younger he starts that, the better. And if I feel like I need, usually I sit there and I'm listening when he makes calls and whatnot. And that 
that includes pharmacy and doctors. You know, I have him check in at the doctor's office now and things like that. But I need him to to understand that, you know, this is the process that we take or what I call restaurants and things like that. You know, this is what I do. This is what you need to ask so that he knows as well. I just want to mention that I really like and I actually also in my clinic advise parents that if they are introducing a new food to do it at a time that's early in the day when your child is feeling their best and when you can be around your child monitoring them. So I think that that's great advice and just start small, you know, just make sure that they get a little tiny bit and you watch them, make sure that they're okay. Sometimes even tell parents just to put it on their face, to put it on their child's skin and see if there's any immediate reaction, because if it's a truly allergenic food, even putting it on the skin can cause a reaction. And so I think all of that advice is so great. And I don't think you're crazy for doing it. I think that that's absolutely something that parents should do when they're introducing a new product. In terms of labeling for me, in terms of calling, I rarely call, but I also rarely eat packaged foods or I don't rarely eat packaged foods, but I have like my go-tos that I know are safe. A lot of the times websites are now getting much better. And I know that there are certain Facebook groups where people will post the conversations they've had with brands. I do feel like there is that thing, I don't know about you, Stephanie, where I like to hear it from the source because my allergies are different than other people's allergies. So I like to hear it from the source. I have my questions that make me feel comfortable. I don't know. I just need to know it from them. I need to go directly to the source. So there probably are more reasons sources out there. I think there are apps that do that. And I think that there are definitely Facebook groups that you can find. But for me, I like to call. And what's interesting is the last few times I've called, the companies were like ready for that question. (laughs) They already had their allergy statement. I feel like they get so many calls that they know you're going to ask and they have their like script ready for you. That's kind of a nice thing is that it doesn't take as long as you think it would take. Right. But that's my whole point. They do have a script. Person that's on that other side isn't allowed to give you a different answer than the other 100 people that are answering those phone calls. What I'm hearing from Stephanie and what I like as an, a way of visualizing this is this building block idea. So you're, you start with your whole foods in terms of like your non-processed foods and then you start to gather the brands that you trust and you find your own comfort level and how they need to be vetted. So whether you need to hear it directly from that company or whether you trust a conversation on a Facebook group group. So it's really about your comfort level. And there are resources to make your life easier. I mean, if you know that this is the brand of mac and cheese you always ate and you would like to continue having that in your house and you're not sure if they're safe, then you vet them and then you add them into your life. And you can look, there are tons of lists that you start with the list. If you feel comfortable with that list already being properly vetted, then go for it. But if you are still uncertain and you need to hear exactly how they vetted that list or what a company would say, if you do call them, you can call one person and then figure it out from there. Stephanie, I don't know if that's... Again, I think it goes back to that. What First thing, what does your doctor tell you? If your advice to your patients is there are brands that you can trust and, and you go with that. And, and I know there are plenty of people that start out right from the get-go going by the label and that's good for them and that's great. And I also think it depends too on what you're managing. If you're managing one one allergen versus multiple allergens, there's some where you're like, well, would they really have this product that I'm allergic to in a plant that is making this? Probably not. So if that's within your comfort level, then by all means, I 100% support 
every family, as long as they have Epi and an action plan (laughs) above and beyond that, it is such an individual system that you have to figure out what works. And I think it's really important for families if, if they are feeling overwhelmed to talk to their doctor and say, okay, I'm, I am getting overwhelmed. What would your advice be? Because sometimes I think you leave that first appointment and your head is just spinning and you might not think to ask your doctor, well, wait, what, how do I shop? So I think it'd be really important to have doctors in on the conversation coming up with their best practice for what it would look like to go to the store, you know, having a handout or something saying, well, this is how I would proceed at the grocery store. Because if that is excessive and if that is, is more than an average family needs to take on, then I think having that burden lifted from the get-go would have been amazing for us as a family. We didn't have that available to us. So perhaps it's something that, you know, doctors, the allergists need to start kind of talking about and and figuring out what their advice would be for best practice for that first shopping trip. I, I think sometimes if you don't live it, you don't understand, you know, you tell them this is the information, this is what you need to do. Here's your action plan. Here are your epis. Go forth. You are kind of left floundering. And that's why I think a lot of people do turn to the to the groups and things that can lead them down that rabbit hole. And I think that's exactly what it is. It's it's more that, well, first of all, doctors don't live this diagnosis unless they do have a child or they personally have a food allergy. And that's why we wanted to have a food allergy parent on this episode, because you you are the expert in this area. You are the expert, not me. But two, I think 13 years ago versus now, and I know Ruchi Gupta, who we interviewed recently too, has been in this scenario with her daughter and all the research she's done. What's available? for people with food allergies 13 years ago and now is totally different. And so I think the advice that you had to go off of and the brand that you had available, you had to do that. You had to call. And that totally makes sense. And that's why I'm saying right now, in this time that we're in right now with, I mean, when we were at that allergy conference, there was so many brands and so many like top nine allergy free. It was really cool to see that there are so many brands available now that really pay attention to those things. And so I guess that's, that's where I was coming from is more just that it seems like that part might possibly be potentially antiquated, but at the same time, you know, again, whatever makes a, a family feel comfortable, I guess I'm just thinking about new parents listening to this and saying, oh, OK, now I have to call every single time I'm going shopping. And that's just where I wanted to make sure that parents understand that they don't necessarily need to do that. I think the one thing with the allergy friendly brands, though, is what I've seen is people may not prefer a dairy free XYZ. So even though it's from an allergy friendly company, because it excludes more allergens than they're managing, they don't prefer the taste or they don't prefer that brand. So I think that might be one of those situations where the allergy friendliness of a product may not suit that family. You know, buying a peanut free mac and cheese is easier than buying a dairy-free or a gluten-free mac and cheese. So that's definitely two different. It's going to depend a lot on what you manage and how you, you know, what, what you need to exclude from your diet. And also there is always the, the economic impact because you are going to pay more for your gluten, dairy, peanut, tree nut free product than you are your box of blue labeled mac and cheese that is safe for your family because you're managing XYZ allergies versus A, B, and C. Such good points. And I think that um, also thinking about excluding foods 
and knowing that that might not be the best idea too for an allergic kid to go to those brands that are top nine allergen free when your kid only has one of those allergens is also not a good idea speaking clinically. And so that absolutely makes a lot of sense. So I think what I'm hearing is stick to whole foods in the beginning. If you need to go to packaged foods, pick those foods in the wisest way that you can. And that means sticking to brands that you're comfortable with and finding those lists and relying on other parents that have gone through similar allergens and kind of going from there and using the internet in a savvy way. Yes. And I would add just knowing your comfort level is going to be different from someone else's comfort level and don't feel guilty about that. So if you are feel comfortable eating this one brand that might have an allergen or you might feel comfortable eating this one brand that has a may contain statement, but you're still okay with it. That's your comfort level. I mean, I have friends who are foodology adults and we all have different comfort levels. You know, we've all experienced anaphylaxis, but we all have different comfort levels on what we're going to eat, how we're going to go about eating it, whether you need a call and eat it at home, whether you're okay with trying it somewhere else. You know, we all have a different comfort level. And I think it's the same for parents, probably is your comfort level is going to be different from another parent's comfort level. Your allergens are different from their allergens. And that also dictates where your comfort level lives. So don't feel guilty about the way you manage your allergies. So Stephanie, this has been so much great information. Thank you so much for talking today. Let's leave off with just the one statement that you wish every food allergy parent would know. My biggest advice... First and foremost and always is have your epinephrine at all times and have your action plan and share it far and share it wide so that everybody knows how to respond if the need should arise. That's awesome advice. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Remember that all information you hear today is for informational purposes only and are not intended to serve as a substitute for the consultation, diagnosis, and or medical treatment of a qualified physician or healthcare provider. And also don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. And if you have a second, help spread the word by rating our podcast and sharing with your friends and family who might also be interested in learning more about allergies, asthma, and immunology. You can always stay up to date by checking out our Instagram, The Itch Podcast, where you can leave questions you are itching to know, or check out our website, which is www.itchpodcast.com, which contains more information about the subjects we covered in today's episode and every episode. Until next time, have a fabulous week. Thank you.